Chapter 4, Part 1 of Ten Days That Shook the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ross Williamson Ten Days That Shook the World by John Reed Chapter 4 The Fall of the Provisional Government Wednesday, November 7th I rose very late. The noon cannon boomed from Peter Paul as I went down the Nevsky. It was a raw, chill day. In front of the state bank, some soldiers with fixed bayonets were standing at the closed gates. "'What side do you belong to?' I asked. "'The government?' "'No more government,' one answered with a grin. "'Slava Bogu! Glory to God!' That was all I could get out of him. The streetcars were running on the Nevsky, men, women, and small boys hanging on every projection. Shops were open, and there seemed even less uneasiness among the street crowds than there had been the day before. A whole crop of new appeals against insurrection had blossomed out on the walls during the night, to the peasants, to the soldiers at the front, to the workmen of Petrograd. One read, From the Petrograd Municipal Duma, the Municipal Duma informs the citizens that in the extraordinary meeting of November 6th, the Duma formed a committee of public safety, composed of members of the Central and Ward Dumas, and representatives of the following revolutionary democratic organizations. The Saika, the All-Russian Executive Committee of Peasant Deputies, the Army Organizations, the Central Flot, the Petrograd Soviet of Workers and Soldiers Deputies, the Council of Trade Unions, and others. Members of the Committee of Public Safety will be on duty in the building of the Municipal Duma. Telephones number 1540-22377-13836, November 7, 1917. Though I didn't realize it then, this was the Duma's declaration of war against the Bolsheviki. I bought a copy of Put the only newspaper which seemed on sale, and a little later paid a soldier fifty kopecks for a second-hand copy of Dien. The Bolshevik paper, printed on large-sized sheets in the conquered office of the Ruskaya Volia, had huge headlines. All power to the Soviets of workers, soldiers, and peasants. Peace, bread, land. The leading article was signed Zinoviev, Lenin's companion in hiding. It began, Every soldier, every worker, every real socialist, every honest democrat realizes that there are only two alternatives to the present situation. Either the power will remain in the hands of the bourgeois landlord crew, and this will mean every kind of repression for workers, soldiers, and peasants, continuation of the war, inevitable hunger and death, or the power will be transferred to the hands of the revolutionary workers, soldiers, and peasants, and in that case it will mean a complete abolition of landlord tyranny, immediate check of the capitalists, immediate proposal of a just peace. Then the land is assured to the peasants, then control of industry is assured to the workers, then bread is assured to the hungry, then the end of this nonsensical war. 
Dien contained fragmentary news of the agitated night. Bolsheviki capture of the telephone exchange, the Baltic station, the telegraph agency, the Peterhof Junkers unable to reach Petrograd, the Cossacks undecided, arrest of some of the ministers, shooting of chief of the city militia Meyer, arrests, counter-arrests, skirmishes between clashing patrols of soldiers, Junkers, and Red Guards. See Appendix 4, Section 1. On the corner of the Morskaya, I ran into Captain Gomburg, Menshevik Oboronets, secretary of the military section of his party. When I asked him if the insurrection had really happened, he shrugged his shoulders in a tired manner and replied, Shortsnayet, the devil knows. Well, perhaps the Bolsheviki can seize the power, but they won't be able to hold it more than three days. They haven't the men to run a government. Perhaps it's a good thing to let them try. That will furnish them. The military hotel at the corner of St. Isaac's Square was picketed by armed sailors. In the lobby were many of the smart young officers, walking up and down or muttering together. The sailors wouldn't let them leave. Suddenly came the sharp crack of a rifle outside, followed by a scattered burst of firing. I ran out. Something unusual was going on around the Marinsky Palace, where the Council of the Russian Republic met. Diagonally across the wide square was drawn a line of soldiers, rifles ready, staring at the hotel roof. Provokatsia! Shot at us! snapped one, while another went running toward the door. At the western corner of the palace lay a big armored car with a red flag flying from it, newly lettered in red paint. S. R. S. D. Soviet Rabochik Soldatskik Deputatov. All the guns trained toward St. Isaac's. A barricade had been heaped up across the mouth of Novaya Ulitsa. Boxes, barrels, an old bedspring, a wagon. A pile of lumber barred the end of the Moigaki. Short logs from a neighboring woodpile were being built up along the front of the building to form breastworks. Is there going to be any fighting? I asked. Soon, soon, answered a soldier nervously. Go away, comrade, you'll get hurt. They will come from that direction, pointing toward the admiralty. Who will? That I couldn't tell you, brother, he answered and spat. Before the door of the palace was a crowd of soldiers and sailors. A sailor was telling of the end of the Council of the Russian Republic. We walked in there, he said and filled all the doors with comrades. I went up to the counter-revolutionist Karnilovitz, who sat in the president's chair. No more council, I says. Run along home now. There was laughter. By waving assorted papers, I managed to get around to the door of the press gallery. There, an enormous, smiling sailor stopped me, and when I showed my pass, just said, If you were St. Michael himself, comrade, you couldn't pass here. Through the glass of the door I made out the distorted face and gesticulating arms of a French correspondent, locked in. Around in front stood a little gray-mustached man in the uniform of a general, the center of a knot of soldiers. He was very red in the face. "'I am General Alexeyev!' he cried. "'As your superior officer and as a member of the Council of the Republic, I demand to be allowed to pass!' The guard scratched his head, 
Looking uneasily out of the corner of his eye, he beckoned to an approaching officer who grew very agitated when he saw who it was and saluted before he realized what he was doing. Your High Excellency, he stammered in the manner of the old regime. Access to the palace is strictly forbidden. I have no right. An automobile came by, and I saw Gott sitting inside, laughing, apparently with great amusement. A few minutes later, another, with armed soldiers on the front seat, full of arrested members of the provisional government. Peters, lettish member of the Military Revolutionary Committee, came hurrying across the square. I thought you bagged all those gentlemen last night, said I, pointing to them. Oh, he answered with the expression of a disappointed small boy, the damn fools let most of them go again before we made up our minds. Down the Voskresensky Prospect, a great mass of sailors were drawn up, and behind them came marching soldiers as far as the eye could reach. We went toward the Winter Palace by way of the Admiraltyevsky. All the entrances to the palace square were closed by sentries, and a cordon of troops stretched clear across the western end, besieged by an uneasy throng of citizens. Except for faraway soldiers who seemed to be carrying wood out of the palace courtyard and piling it in front of the main gateway, everything was quiet. We couldn't make out whether the sentries were pro-government or pro-Soviet. Our papers from Smolny had no effect, however, so we approached another part of the line with an important air and showed our American passports, saying, Official business, and shouldered through. At the door of the palace, the same old Schwitzari, in their brass-buttoned blue uniforms with the red and gold collars, politely took our coats and hats, and we went upstairs. In the dark, gloomy corridor, stripped of its tapestries, a few old attendants were lounging about, and in front of Kerensky's door a young officer paced up and down, gnawing his mustache. We asked if we could interview the minister-president. He bowed and clicked his heels. No, I am sorry, he replied in French. Alexander Fyodorovich is extremely occupied just now. He looked at us for a moment. In fact, he is not here. Where is he? He has gone to the front. See Appendix 4, Section 2. And do you know there wasn't enough gasoline for his automobile? We had to send to the English hospital and borrow some. Are the ministers here? They are meeting in some room. I don't know where. Are the Bolsheviki coming? Of course. Certainly they are coming. I expect a telephone call every minute to say that they are coming. But we are ready. We have Junkers in the front of the palace. Through that door there. Can we go in there? No, certainly not. It is not permitted. Abruptly he shook hands all around and walked away. We turned to the forbidden door, set in a temporary partition dividing the hall and locked on the outside. On the other side were voices and somebody laughing. Except for that, the vast spaces of the old palace were silent as the grave. An old Schwitzar ran up. No, Barin, you must not go in there. Why is the door locked? To keep the soldiers in, he answered. After a few minutes, he said something about having a glass of tea and went back up the hall. We unlocked the door. Just inside, a couple of soldiers stood on guard, but they said nothing. 
At the end of the corridor was a large, ornate room with gilded cornices and enormous crystal lusters, and beyond it several smaller ones, wainscoted with dark wood. On both sides of the parquetted floor lay rows of dirty mattresses and blankets, upon which occasional soldiers were stretched out. Everywhere was a litter of cigarette butts, bits of bread, cloth, and empty bottles with expensive French labels. More and more soldiers, with the red shoulder straps of the Junker schools, moved about in a stale atmosphere of tobacco smoke and unwashed humanity. One had a bottle of white burgundy, evidently filched from the cellars of the palace. They looked at us with astonishment as we marched past, through room after room, until at last we came out into a series of great state salons, fronting their long and dirty windows on the square. The walls were covered with huge canvases in massive gilt frames, historical battle scenes, 12 October 1812 and 6 November 1812 and 1628 August 1813. One had a gash across the upper right-hand corner. The place was all a huge barrack and evidently had been for weeks from the look of the floor and walls. Machine guns were mounted on window sills, rifles stacked between the mattresses. As we were looking at the pictures, an alcoholic breath assailed me from the region of my left ear, and a voice said in thick but fluent French, I see by the way you admire the paintings that you are foreigners. He was a short, puffy man with a baldish head as he removed his cap. Americans? Enchanted. I am Stubbs Capitan Vladimir Arsibashev. Absolutely at your service. It did not seem to occur to him that there was anything unusual in four strangers, one a woman, wandering through the defenses of an army awaiting attack. He began to complain of the state of Russia. Not only these Bolsheviki, he said but the fine traditions of the Russian army are broken down. Look around you. These are all students in the officers' training schools. But are they gentlemen? Kerensky opened the officers' schools to the ranks, to any soldier who could pass an examination. Naturally, there are many, many who are contaminated by the revolution. Without consequence, he changed the subject. I am very anxious to go away from Russia. I have made up my mind to join the American army. Will you please go to your consul and make arrangements? I will give you my address. In spite of our protestations, he wrote it on a piece of paper and seemed to feel better at once. I have it still. Aranian Bramska Shkola Praporshchikov, 2nd Sraya Petagov. We had a review this morning early, he went on, as he guided us through the rooms and explained everything. The women's battalion decided to remain loyal to the government. Are the women soldiers in the palace? Yes, they are in the back rooms, where they won't be hurt if any trouble comes. <sighs> he sighed. It is a great responsibility, said he. For a while we stood at the window, looking down on the square before the palace, 
where three companies of long-coated yunkers were drawn up under arms, being harangued by a tall, energetic-looking officer I recognized as Stankievich, chief military commissar of the provisional government. After a few minutes, two of the companies shouldered arms with a clash, barked three sharp shouts, and went swinging off across the square, disappearing through the red arch into the quiet city. They are going to capture the telephone exchange, said someone. Three cadets stood by us, and we fell into conversation. They said they had entered the schools from the ranks and gave their names, Robert Olaf, Alexei Vasilyenko, and Ernie Sachs, an Estonian. But now they didn't want to be officers anymore, because officers were very unpopular. They didn't seem to know what to do, as a matter of fact, and it was plain that they were not happy. But soon they began to boast. If the Bolsheviki come, we shall show them how to fight. They do not dare to fight. They are cowards. But if we should be overpowered, well, every man keeps one bullet for himself. At this point there was a burst of rifle fire not far off. Out on the square, all the people began to run, falling flat on their faces. And the Isvostchiki, standing on the corners, galloped in every direction. Inside all was uproar, soldiers running here and there, grabbing up guns, rifle belts, and shouting, Here they come! Here they come! But in a few minutes it quieted down again. The Izvoschiki came back, the people lying down stood up. Through the red arch appeared the Junkers, marching a little out of step, one of them supported by two comrades. It was getting late when we left the palace. The sentries in the square had all disappeared. The great semicircle of government buildings seemed deserted. We went into the Hotel France for dinner, and right in the middle of soup the waiter, very pale in the face, came up and insisted that we move to the main dining room at the back of the house because they were going to put out the lights in the café. There will be much shooting, he said. When we came out on the Morskaya again, it was quite dark except for one flickering streetlight on the corner of the Nevsky. Under this stood a big armored automobile with racing engine and oil smoke pouring out of it. A small boy had climbed up the side of the thing and was looking down the barrel of a machine gun. Soldiers and sailors stood around, evidently waiting for something. We walked back up to the Red Arch, where a knot of soldiers was gathered staring at the brightly lighted winter palace and talking in loud tones. No, comrades, one was saying. How can we shoot at them? The women's battalion is in there. They will say we have fired on Russian women. As we reached the Nevsky again, another armored car came around the corner and a man poked his head out of the turret top. Come on, he yelled. Let's go on through and attack. The driver of the other car came over and shouted so as to be heard above the roaring engine. The committee says to wait. They have got artillery behind the woodpiles in there. Here the streetcars had stopped running, few people passed, and there were no lights. But a few blocks away we could see the trams, the crowds, the lighted shop windows, and the electric signs of the moving picture shows life going on as usual. We had tickets to the ballet at the Marinsky Theater. All theaters were open, but it was too exciting out of doors.
In the darkness we stumbled over lumber piles barricading the police bridge, and before the Stroganov Palace we made out some soldiers wheeling into position a three-inch field gun. Men in various uniforms were coming and going in an aimless way, and doing a great deal of talking. Up the Nevsky, the whole city seemed to be out promenading. On every corner, immense crowds were massed around a core of hot discussion. Pickets of a dozen soldiers with fixed bayonets lounged at the street crossings. Red-faced old men in rich fur coats shook their fists at them. Smartly dressed women screamed epithets. The soldiers argued feebly, with embarrassed grins. Armored cars went up and down the street, named after the first Tsars, Oleg, Rurik, Svetoslav, and daubed with huge red letters, R.S.D.R.P. Rosiskaya Partia. Footnote. Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. End footnote. At the Mikhailovsky, a man appeared with an armful of newspapers and was immediately stormed by frantic people offering a ruble, five rubles, ten rubles, tearing at each other like animals. It was Rabochi i Soldat, announcing the victory of the proletarian revolution, the liberation of the Bolsheviki still in prison, calling upon the army front and rear for support. A feverish little sheet of four pages, running to enormous type, containing no news. On the corner of the Sadovia, about two thousand citizens had gathered, staring up at the roof of a tall building, where a tiny red spark glowed and waned. See, said a tall peasant, pointing to it, it is a provocator. Presently he will fire on the people. Apparently no one thought of going to investigate. The massive façade of Smolny blazed with lights as we drove up, and from every street converged upon it streams of hurrying shapes, dim in the gloom. Automobiles and motorcycles came and went. An enormous elephant-colored armored automobile with two red flags flying from the turret lumbered out with screaming siren. It was cold, and at the outer gate the red guards had built themselves a bonfire. At the inner gate, too, there was a blaze, by the light of which the sentries slowly spelled out our passes and looked us up and down. The canvas covers had been taken off the four rapid-fire guns on each side of the doorway, and the ammunition belts hung snake-like from their breeches. A dun herd of armored cars stood under the trees in the courtyard, engines going. The long, bare, dimly illuminated halls roared with the thunder of feet, calling, shouting. There was an atmosphere of recklessness. A crowd came pouring down the staircase, workers in black blouses and round black fur hats, many of them with guns slung over their shoulders, soldiers in rough dirt-colored coats and gray fur shopki pinched flat, a leader or so, Lunacharsky, Kamenev, hurrying along in the center of a group all talking at once with harassed, anxious faces and bulging portfolios under their arms. The extraordinary meeting of the Petrograd Soviet was over. I stopped Kamenev, 
a quick-moving little man with a wide, vivacious face set close to his shoulders. Without preface, he read in rapid French a copy of the resolution just passed. The Petrograd Soviet of Workers and Soldiers Deputies, saluting the victorious revolution of the Petrograd proletariat and garrison, particularly emphasizes the unity, organization, discipline, and complete cooperation shown by the masses in this rising. Rarely has less blood been spilled, and rarely has an insurrection succeeded so well. The Soviet expresses its firm conviction that the workers and peasants' government, which as the government of the Soviets, will be created by the revolution, and which will assure the industrial proletariat of the support of the entire mass of poor peasants, will march firmly towards socialism, the only means by which the country can be spared the miseries and unheard-of horrors of war. The new workers' and peasants' government will propose immediately a just and democratic peace to all the belligerent countries. It will suppress immediately the great landed property and transfer the land to the peasants. It will establish workmen's control over production and distribution of manufactured products and will set up a general control over the banks, which it will transform into a state monopoly. The Petrograd Soviet of Workers and Soldiers' Deputies calls upon the workers and the peasants of Russia to support with all their energy and all their devotion the proletarian revolution. The Soviet expresses its conviction that the city workers, allies of the poor peasants, will assure complete revolutionary order, indispensable to the victory of socialism. The Soviet is convinced that the proletariat of the countries of Western Europe will aid us in conducting the cause of socialism to a real and lasting victory. You consider it one, then. He lifted his shoulders. There is much to do, horribly much. It is just beginning. On the landing I met Ryazanov, vice-president of the trade unions, looking black and biting his grey beard. "'It's insane! Insane!' he shouted. "'The European working class won't move! Oh, Russia!' He waved his hand distractedly and ran off. Ryazanov and Kamenev had both opposed the insurrection and felt the lash of Lenin's terrible tongue." It had been a momentous session. In the name of the Military Revolutionary Committee, Trotsky had declared that the provisional government no longer existed. The characteristic of bourgeois governments, he said, is to deceive the people. We, the Soviets of workers, soldiers, and peasants' deputies, are going to try an experiment unique in history. We are going to found a power which will have no other aim but to satisfy the needs of the soldiers, workers, and peasants. Lenin had appeared, welcomed with a mighty ovation, prophesying worldwide social revolution. And Zinoviev, crying, This day we have paid our debt to the international proletariat and struck a terrible blow at the war. A terrible body blow at all the imperialists, and particularly at Wilhelm the Executioner. Then Trotsky, that telegrams had been sent to the front announcing the victorious insurrection, but no reply had come. Troops were said to be marching against Petrograd. A delegation must be sent to tell them the truth. Cries, You are anticipating the will of the All-Russian Congress of Soviets. 
Trotsky coldly. The will of the All-Russian Congress of Soviets has been anticipated by the rising of the Petrograd workers and soldiers. So we came into the great meeting hall, pushing through the clamorous mob at the door. In the rows of seats under the white chandeliers, packed immovably in the aisles and on the sides, perched on every window-sill and even the edge of the platform, the representatives of the workers and soldiers of all Russia waited in anxious silence or wild exultation the ringing of the chairman's bell. There was no heat in the hall but the stifling heat of unwashed human bodies. A foul blue cloud of cigarette smoke rose from the mass and hung in the thick air. Occasionally someone in authority mounted the tribune and asked the comrades not to smoke. Then everybody, smokers and all, took up the cry, Don't smoke, comrades! and went on smoking. Petrovsky, anarchist delegate from the Obukov factory, made a seat for me beside him. Unshaven and filthy, he was reeling from three nights' sleepless work on the Military Revolutionary Committee. On the platform sat the leaders of the old Tsaika, for the last time dominating the turbulent Soviets, which they had ruled from the first days and which were now risen against them. It was the end of the first period of the Russian Revolution, which these men had attempted to guide in careful ways. The three greatest of them were not there, Kerensky flying to the front through country towns all doubtfully heaving up, Chitsa, the old eagle, who had contemptuously retired to his own Georgian mountains, there to sicken with consumption, and the high-souled Tseretelli, also mortally stricken, who nevertheless would return and pour out his beautiful eloquence for a lost cause. Gotz sat there, Dan, Lieber, Bogdanov, Broido, Filipovsky, white-faced, hollow-eyed, and indignant. Below them the second siest of the all-Russian Soviets boiled and swirled, and over their heads the Military Revolutionary Committee functioned white-hot, holding in its hands the threads of insurrection and striking with a long arm. It was 10.40 p.m. Dan, a mild-faced, baldish figure in a shapeless military surgeon's uniform, was ringing the bell. Silence fell sharply, intense, broken by the scuffling and disputing of the people at the door. We have the power in our hands, he began sadly, stopped for a moment, and then went on in a low voice. Comrades, the Congress of Soviets, in meeting in such unusual circumstances and in such an extraordinary moment, that you will understand why the Seika considers it unnecessary to address you with a political speech. This will become much clearer to you if you will recollect that I am a member of the Tseika, and that at this very moment our party comrades are in the Winter Palace under bombardment, sacrificing themselves to execute the duty put on them by the Tseika. Confused Uproar I declare the first session of the Second Congress of Soviets of Workers and Soldiers' Deputies open. The election of the Presidium took place amid stir and moving about. 
Avanesov announced that by agreement of the Bolsheviki, left socialist revolutionaries, and Mensheviki internationalists, it was decided to base the Presidium upon proportionality. Several Mensheviki leaped to their feet, protesting. A bearded soldier shouted at them, Remember what you did to us Bolsheviki when we were the minority. Result? Fourteen Bolsheviki, seven socialist revolutionaries, three Mensheviki, and one internationalist, Gorky's group. Hendelman, for the right and center socialist revolutionaries, said that they refused to take part in the Presidium. The same from Kinchuk for the Mensheviki, and from the Mensheviki internationalists, that until the verification of certain circumstances, they too could not enter the Presidium. Scattering applause and hoots. One voice. Renegades, you call yourselves socialists. A representative of the Ukrainian delegates demanded and received a place. Then the old Tsaika stepped down, and in their places appeared Trotsky, Kamenyev, Lunacharsky, Madame Kolontai, Nogin. The hall rose, thundering. How far they had soared, these Bolsheviki, from a despised and hunted sect less than four months ago to this supreme place the helm of great Russia in full tide of insurrection. The order of the day, said Kamenyev, was first, organization of power, second, war and peace, and third, the constituent assembly. Lozovsky, rising, announced that upon agreement of the Bureau of All Factions it was proposed to hear and discuss the report of the Petrograd Soviet, then to give the floor to members of the Tsaika and the different parties, and finally to pass to the order of the day. But suddenly a new sound made itself heard, deeper than the tumult of the crowd, persistent, disquieting, the dull shock of guns. People looked anxiously toward the clouded windows, and a sort of fever came over them. Martov, demanding the floor, croaked hoarsely, The civil war is beginning, comrades. The first question must be a peaceful settlement of the crisis. On principle and from a political standpoint, we must urgently discuss a means of averting civil war. Our brothers are being shot down in the streets. At this moment, when before the opening of the Congress of Soviets, the question of power is being settled by means of a military plot organized by one of the revolutionary parties, for a moment he could not make himself heard above the noise. All of the revolutionary parties must face the fact. The first Vopros question before the Congress is the question of power, and this question is already being settled by force of arms in the streets. We must create a power which will be recognized by the whole democracy. If the Congress wishes to be the voice of the revolutionary democracy, it must not sit with folded hands before the developing civil war, the result of which may be a dangerous outburst of counter-revolution. The possibility of a peaceful outcome lies in the formation of a united democratic authority. We must elect a delegation to negotiate with the other socialist parties and organization. Always the methodical, muffled boom of cannon through the windows, 
and the delegates screaming at each other. So, with the crash of artillery, in the dark, with hatred and fear and reckless daring, new Russia was being born. The left socialist revolutionaries and the united social democrats supported Martov's proposition. It was accepted. A soldier announced that the all-Russian peasants' Soviets had refused to send delegates to the Congress. He proposed that a committee be sent with a formal invitation. Some delegates are present, he said. I move that they be given votes. Accepted. Karash, wearing the epaulets of a captain, passionately demanded the floor. The political hypocrites who control this Congress, he shouted, told us we were to settle the question of power, and it is being settled behind our backs before the Congress opens. Blows are being struck against the Winter Palace, and it is by such blows that the nails are being driven into the coffin of the political party which has risked such an adventure. Uproar. Followed him, Gara. While we are here discussing propositions of peace, there is a battle on in the streets. The socialist revolutionaries and the Mensheviki refuse to be involved in what is happening and call upon all public forces to resist the attempt to capture the power. Kuchin, delegate of the 12th Army and representative of the Trudoviki. I was sent here only for information, and I am returning at once to the front, where all the army committees considered that the taking of power by the Soviets only three weeks before the Constituent Assembly is a stab in the back of the army and a crime against the people. Shouts of, Lie! You lie! When he could be heard again, Let's make an end of this adventure in Petrograd. I call upon all delegates to leave this hall in order to save the country and the revolution. As he went down the aisle in the midst of a deafening noise, people surged in upon him, threatening. Then Kinchuk, an officer with a long brown goatee, speaking suavely and persuasively, I speak for the delegates from the front. The army is imperfectly represented in this Congress, and furthermore, the army does not consider the Congress of Soviets necessary at this time, only three weeks before the opening of the Constituent. Shouts and stamping, always growing more violent. The army does not consider that the Congress of Soviets has the necessary authority. Soldiers began to stand up all over the hall. Who are you speaking for? What do you represent? They cried. The Central Executive Committee of the Soviet of the Fifth Army, the 2nd F Regiment, the 1st N Regiment, the 3rd S Rifles. Where were you elected? You represent the officers, not the soldiers. What do the soldiers say about it? Jeers and hoots. We, the front group, disclaim all responsibility for what has happened and is happening, and we consider it necessary to mobilize all self-conscious revolutionary forces for the salvation of the revolution. The front group will leave the Congress. The place to fight is out on the streets. Immense bawling outcry. You speak for the staff, not for the army. I appeal to all reasonable soldiers to leave this Congress. Kornilovich, counter-revolutionist, provocator, were hurled at him. On behalf of the Mensheviki, Kinchuk then announced that the only possibility of a peaceful solution 
was to begin negotiations with the provisional government for the formation of a new cabinet which would find support in all strata of society. He could not proceed for several minutes. Raising his voice to a shout, he read the Menshevik Declaration. Because the Bolsheviki have made a military conspiracy with the aid of the Petrograd Soviet, without consulting the other factions and parties, we find it impossible to remain in the Congress and therefore withdraw, inviting the other groups to follow us and to meet for discussion of the situation. Deserter! At intervals in the almost continuous disturbance, Hendelman, for the socialist revolutionaries, could be heard protesting against the bombardment of the Winter Palace. We are opposed to this kind of anarchy. Scarcely had he stepped down than a young, lean-faced soldier with flashing eyes leaped to the platform and dramatically lifted his hand. Comrades, he cried, and there was a hush. My familia, name, is Peterson. I speak for the Second Lettish Rifles. You have heard the statements of two representatives of the army committees. These statements would have some value, if their authors had been representatives of the army. Wild applause. But they do not represent the soldiers. Shaking his fist. The Twelfth Army has been insisting for a long time upon the re-election of the Great Soviet and Army Committee. But just as your own Tsaika, our committee refused to call a meeting of the representatives of the masses until the end of September, so that the reactionaries could elect their own false delegates to this Congress. I tell you now, the Lettish soldiers have many times said, no more resolutions, no more talk. We want deeds. The power must be in our hands. Let these impostor delegates leave the Congress. The army is not with them. The hall rocked with cheering. In the first moments of the session, stunned by the rapidity of events, startled by the sound of cannon, the delegates had hesitated. For an hour, hammer-blow after hammer-blow had fallen from that tribune, welding them together but beating them down. Did they stand then alone? Was Russia rising against them? Was it true that the army was marching on Petrograd? Then this clear-eyed young soldier had spoken, and in a flash they knew it for the truth. This was the voice of the soldiers. The stirring millions of uniformed workers and peasants were men like them, and their thoughts and feelings were the same. End of chapter 4, part 1